training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hey, welcome back to the Pendola Project. Episode 71, Does Foam Rolling Work? If you're anything like me, there may have been a time in your life, not too far in the past, when you thought foam rolling was the answer to all of your body's pains. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it has a lot of good applications, but it is not the cure-all that I once thought. Luckily for us, we have Matt and Aaron Pendola, who are both licensed massage therapists. That means they actually understand what's happening when you foam roll or any other kind of SMR, self-myofascial release. I, for one, like to use a softball on certain areas because it feels like I'm getting a more intense trigger point sort of release. You're going to learn how the muscles and other connective tissues in the body are set up, and that kind of knowledge is going to help you make your own decisions on when and if you should use foam rolling. Thanks for all your ratings and subscriptions to the podcast. Don't forget to sign up for the email newsletter. Follow and get in touch with us on Facebook or Instagram, and the Pendola's app full of exercises and workout programs is available for free for however long this lockdown lasts. I would not wait on that if I were you. Now take a seat and get your foam rolls ready. Here's episode 71, Does Foam Rolling Work? Hey guys, Matt Pendola here with the Pendola Project Podcast, and we're coming at you today with a question, or actually several questions we've had, especially lately, about does foam rolling work? So we're going to answer that question today and probably actually get into a little bit more depth and detail about other things like taping. Does kinesio tape work? What about cupping? These type of what's called DNIC, and we'll explain that in further detail, but do these things actually work? And what do we think as LMTs? I'm an LMT. Aaron's an LMT. Aaron, what is an LMT exactly? Well, LMT is licensed massage therapist for the technical term. So you obviously have to go to school for that. And depending on what state you're in, the regulations vary. So here in Nevada, it's a little more stringent. But yeah, licensed massage therapist. So we're allowed to put our hands on people, on their tissues, and hopefully make them feel better. Putting our hands on tissues. (laughs) I know that sounded really weird even as I was saying it. (laughs) Meaning, okay, here's what I mean by that, that when you have a, when you're a personal trainer, strength trainer, you are certified as well, but you are not supposed to actually touch your client. So if they have an issue, you can't stretch them, you can't do any release work. So that's what I mean. Soft tissue work as an LMT, you can actually put your hands on somebody and manipulate their tissue. That's what I meant by that. Yeah, that's actually why I got my LMT license in the first place. I was starting to work with John Hodges over at Nevada Physical Therapy. I keep threatening to have him on the channel, but he really will be on soon. He's promised me. And of course, once all of this is over and we can have guests in the studio, we will do that. You guys will be uh, hearing a lot more from John Hodges in Nevada Physical Therapy. But Anyways, I go over there on Wednesdays, or at least I did for a long time. I will be again soon. And what he told me at that time was he would suggest getting my LMT license. That way I could officially work on manual type of therapy for my athletes. So for me, the incentive wasn't so much about massaging people. Um, I know that that's what you like to do. Yeah, well, I got my license in 2009, so it's been 11 years, and that was my original intent. I'd been training for about three years at that point, and I liked the other side of the work as far as, you know, I hate to say fixing somebody, but helping somebody to, to feel better. And so, yeah, I got into it just for the general practice of massage that was really interesting to me in the way the body could heal so that that is why I originally got into it yeah and I like that you said it that way fixing somebody because that to me is a part of the problem that is part of the mentality and I feel like going through school we went to a wonderful school and I really like the instructors there, the owners, very passionate people, loved what they do. So I'm not knocking on that, but there's that sort of 
mentality that you are going to fix people. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And you have to be very careful with that. People tend to start relying on that. If you, if you make yourself the, I I can heal you, I can fix you. I can, you need to see me because I know what to do. And without me, you're going to be not fixed. And so I, I don't use that language. You know, I, I may have honestly 11 years ago that may have been in my vocabulary that I can, I can fix you. I can heal you, but not, not any longer because I, that can be a pretty slippery slope. Yeah. I remember one day they brought in this sort of guru LMT, or at least she was supposed to be, she had all this experience and she really, she sort of she was like a manual therapist in a lot of ways where she would trigger point people in different directions or, or ways and have them move their, let's say their shoulder as she trigger pointed. And that was very painful for the client because she'd say, okay, I'm pushing down on the first rib and I'm manipulating this and I'm doing that. And now I'm going to release the pec minor and I'm going to do this and that. And Although I agreed with her techniques, and I actually saw those techniques, quite honestly, done better by Pete Barbieri, who's a manual therapist here in Reno and actually world-renowned great therapist, but been around for several, several years, and I've been lucky enough to actually do some shadowing around him for a few years as well. And I knew the techniques that she was demonstrating. I just didn't like how she described it. She was creating that sort of nocebo effect in my mind to where this is what I'm doing to fix you. And now that I've done this, your shoulder will be better, but you'll need me again soon. So come back in a few weeks. And that was actually the point of her lecture. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, I guess, with the slippery slope where you don't want people to become dependent on you and solely you in order to think that they need that to be the best version of themselves and be able to function normally. I just, I don't like the idea that it's up to me to make you who you are, you know, and be able to do the things that you do. And without me, you would be lost. And that's so far from the truth. Yeah. And we see that mentality even in today. In these times that we're in now, we have, we won't mention names, but we have a client of ours that's seeing an LMT right now for clinical massage, right? Um, Clinical. No, I mean, it's not considered medical. No, I know it's not, but that's what she's telling Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, because right now, as I'm sure it is in a lot of states, but here in Nevada that you are supposed to be getting hands-on work performed only by a physical therapist in that physical therapist's office. So myself being a licensed massage therapist, I do not qualify as essential. So therefore I have not been working, but yes, unfortunately there are still people that think that they can skirt around the, the laws right now and offer their services. And I mean, my personal opinion is that you shouldn't be so. Yeah, I mean, I think that we have an obligation to just abide by the standards that uh, our licensing practice or organization has set up for us. Whether we agree with it or not, I think that we have a professional obligation. So I have a personal problem with people who are skirting that. I know that we all want to make money, and this time is can be tough. We have bills to pay, uh, but we're all making sacrifices and to sort of present yourself as something you're not, I have a problem with that. But it's, again, the mentality being that I'm going to, I'm going to work on you like I'm a physical therapist or like I have a license for something else. That alone shows sort of where our mentality can be and how we as clients can just trust what people are professionals are telling us. And that's not necessarily the truth. So again, you know, you're doing your due diligence by doing a little bit of researching and having some questions, some good questions for the person that's working with you, uh, because that's the next part I wanted to talk about as an LMT how many times I have talked to patients that or clients that have been with another therapist LMT for years and years. And 
they've just honestly been sort of swindled, in my opinion. Um, what they thought they were getting treatment for and getting done wasn't anything even near the effect. So the cause and effect, and it was maybe a placebo for that client. They believed it was working. But my real problem with that is, hey, if it works for you, you know, do it. Okay, I, I agree with that. I say that all the time. But there is sort of a catch-22 to that because if I have a client, for example, that thinks that their shoulder is now healthy and responsive because the therapist fixed me and now they go to play tennis and they hurt themselves because they didn't do anything for stability for their shoulder. They just had somebody manually help to manipulate that area and give them sort of some passive movement then sure, they can get that range now, but they don't have the stability to support that power they're trying to produce by hitting that, let's say, that that ball overhead. Yeah, so I, there is a place, like what Matt is saying, for, the, for that passive manipulation where, yeah, maybe somebody just does need something to feel better at that moment, and that's perfectly fine, you know, but you can't replace the, the work that needs to be done to actually improve that area you know, doing doing the passive manipulation and getting their tissue moving again and feeling good is step one, but there needs to be a follow-up from there. So if you don't do the proper follow-up, then the work that you just did is going to be just that. It's just going to be a very temporary, this feels good right now fix. So let's get to why most people tuned in, I think, in the first place, which is does self-myofascial release work? Does SMR work? And do we do it ourselves? Do we suggest that our clients do it? Aaron? Yeah, I still SMR. I, I don't do it as frequently as I did, say, even 10 years ago. It's more as an, you know, on an as needed basis. So they're again, kind of like the training. There's a specific reason why I do a certain movement in the gym. There's also a specific reason why I would foam roll a certain muscle and then, but it has to be followed up with the right protocol after to make it actually be effective. Yeah, that's a good point. And I oftentimes will ask the question, are we really tight in this area? And what does that mean? Are we just taught? Is that something that is even a bad thing? So for example, trigger pointing. I like to bring this up. If you trigger point certain areas on your body, it's always going to be sensitive. It's always going to be feeling tight or even painful if you press into it. And that's just partially because how we're built and those attachments should be tight. They should be taught. So sometimes I think that's deceptive in uh, even a selling point, unfortunately, for therapy with some trainers. Yeah, I get that question a lot. Like, well, when will I when will I come in for a massage and everything's going to feel great and I'm going to feel no pain? And I tell people, probably never because your body doesn't function like that. If you're an athlete and you're using your body and you're using your muscles the way you should be, no one's ever going to be a hundred percent feeling good everywhere all the time. It's just, it's almost like you kind of want to have some of that discomfort that shows that your body is functioning the way you want it to be functioning and you're using it the way that it should be being used. Yeah. When your muscles have that tautness, they've been taught, they've been taught <laughs> how to position themselves and how to respond in certain activities and movements that you want them to be a little bit more conditioned for. So oftentimes I don't even see that as a bad thing, but I think it's the perception uh, that people would assume that it's bad that they're tight in a certain area. I'll take my hamstrings, for example. If I am, if, if I'm really tight anywhere, it would be hamstrings. Everybody would agree that my hamstrings are tight, okay? Because I can, I mean, I can barely get my hands past my knees or my shins when I reach down. So everybody like, oh, you know, big gasp because how do you even go run without pulling your hamstring? You're so tight there. And actually I have hamstring recoil efficiency for power economy. And what does that mean? That means I'm an endurance runner. And I was born to be a distance runner. 
in my mind, it's a blessing that I have that kind of recoil. And I'm not tight there because if I lay down on my back and I lift my leg up, I actually have what is considered acceptable acceptable range. Maybe you would even say optimal range. I would say optimal range for an endurance athlete, a runner. Yeah. And my body's a little bit different. You know, again, I wasn't born to be an endurance runner. I believe dance and martial arts were what I was meant to to be doing in, in my athletic career. So my hamstrings are extremely flexible, but to me, that's okay because I need that for my kicks. I need to be able to kick high and that affords me the chance to do that. So that's where we're a little bit different, I think, too. Yeah. And when I look at the entire body, so what is my body really responding to? Going to foam rolling or to, let's say, some sort of self-malfascial release system that I like to follow, that is the deceptive part that I uh, feel like we have to educate people on. Because we'll take the T-band, for example. Everyone is going to feel it when they hit their T-band, when they roll. Everyone. And then people say, well, I have definitely need it there. So why? Because I'm tight there, right? All right, this whole concept, let's start off with what the T-band can respond to and what it can do, okay? It can suspend a small car, first of all. That's, that's, how, that's how strong it is, okay? And that is a part of the misconception to say I'm going to roll it and somehow loosen it up or to even relax it. That's just not happening. So... I'll be the first to admit when 20 years ago or so, when I took my NASM course and a big part of the course was on foam rolling and, and I was just so excited. I came back, all my athletes were going to foam roll now. And man, I was just, I was one of those guys. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, roll your T-band 20 years ago, everybody was doing it. Even, even the top trainers were saying to do this. And I had an athlete, uh, Joey Gilbert, who is my professional boxer. He called me. He was in Vegas. He was trying everything. His, he had some knee pain that he just could not get rid of. And he was supposed to be doing some road work for his conditioning. And he couldn't get it in because his knee was bothering him. And so I told him, roll out. Roll out that T-band. He called me up maybe, I don't know, five or six hours later. He had... He, do, he did his foam rolling, and then he went on his run, and he felt fantastic. He was able to get his conditioning in. So he said, man, Matt, that was magic. That was awesome. And to this day, he talks about that story, about what a big turnaround that was. I believe there's a couple things happening there. One, you are just bringing some DNIC into the situation. So that's where you have diffused noxious inhibitory control mechanism. What that really means is that, say I stomp on your foot. Now, when you have that foot pain, you're not thinking any longer about your knee, are you? So that's in part what, or the, say, short definition of what DNIC would would mean or or how it works so it just simply it's a very painful thing to roll out the t-band especially if you're somebody like joey and he's like competitive about it and probably even bruised himself doing it because he did it so much but it did get him to take his mind off of his knee and of course he did get some circulation in there that doesn't hurt but I think the main thing was placebo. I think that it worked because I told him it would work. And I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing either, though. You know, if, if that's what he needed at that moment to get his, his conditioning in, that outweighs, you know, him rolling his T-band. So he was able to get his conditioning, which boosted his confidence, which made him feel better for the, for the rest of the week. Then, great, roll your T-band, even though, yes, quote, it's not going to actually fix anything, but it still, you know, got that mental side going that, okay, I did something now I feel great. So to me, that's okay. You know, that's not a bad aspect of the, the foam rolling. Okay. So the, the problem I would have with that though, is long-term 
that the client would be thinking that they need to do that in order to go run. What's happening is that we are giving ourselves the opportunity to go run so we can get stronger, so we can benefit, but the mechanical loading is the next step. In order to sort of fill in that gap and that need, we need to mechanically load to support these tissues. So in other words, what did the root problem really come down to? Not the T-band, but the glute med. Exercises that included and emphasized his glute med was the real opportunity here to discover and to know that this is where we should do more work. So we started to put in more things like lateral bridges, right? So frontal plane leg raises where his leg is raising up in the air in a side plank and having his toe pointed down, by the way, to really start to focus and target in on that glute med, doing monster walks with the mini bands, having opportunities to know that that is where we need to focus on is actually a really good thing. So a lot of times that's when I say I will use SMR for sure, or as a therapist, I will look at what treatments we are doing and what seems to be helping and working, but then that is really just giving me more of a protocol to set up to help that client in the long term. Yeah, and that goes hand in hand, we were saying earlier, with kind of doing your homework and knowing the right therapist to go see, because a lot of therapists can, can like say manipulate your tissue and you feel good for that moment, but they don't give you any kind of follow up like, okay, well now that's why I think it's worked so well in this facility. And I know there are probably many others like us, but where you have both things under one roof. So here I can get my hands on you. I can, you know, kind of figure out what's happening there, but I can also show you step two, that's going to, you know, actually facilitate that work and make it last. And, um, I, I think a lot of that is missing that next step where, yeah, you go and get your massage, you get your body work done, but it ends there. So having the second half of that, of I'm going to educate you, I'm going to teach you what patterns you need to do after this so that this work actually makes sense and, and has some good effect for you and, and is going to work long-term. That's where I believe that programs from people like K-Star, uh, Kelly Starrett, right? And he had The Supple Leopard, which I read that book. I love it. I, I think that there was so much good information in there. But I can tell you the flip side of that, working with clients that belong to different programs online where they could look up, okay, my knee hurts. What should I do to smash and stretch it? And they were self-diagnosing, which isn't always such a bad thing. Sometimes it would be okay. But I had clients, I don't know about you, but I would have clients that come in that were actually bruised up because they had done so much SMR. And by the way, this is another subject we should talk about next with those harder surfaces. So you're starting to use lacrosse balls because foam rolls aren't enough now. And so we're going to use lacrosse balls. They're more specific or these harder rolls, right? So you're taking even PVC pipes and stuff like that. I will use those, but not very often and not daily. Well, again, that is planned. There's a reason why you would go for that lacrosse ball versus say a foam roll or a med ball. That's a little more forgiving or a tennis ball even there's a, it's not just a random choice that you, that you make. It's, there's a specific reason for each area of the body or the, the situation that's happening, why you would choose that implement. It's not like, Oh, I'm just going to take whatever's out of this bin and I'm going to use it today. And I love deep tissue work. It just, the hurts so good. Those of you who understand that know what I'm talking about. The hurts so good. So, um, I can, I do understand and, you know, get where people can go a little overboard sometimes because I've done it myself where there's that spot that like, man, it just feels so, my glute meat, that's my spot where I can just dig into that thing. And at the time it feels amazing, but I also 
know what I need to do after that to, to make it work. So I do understand both sides of that where it does get a little bit addicting, that feeling of like, oh man, it just feels so good. I just want to keep doing this. Just remember that you're giving yourself the opportunity to be able to start to load. And so you say, yeah, it feels so good, but you should have probably about 10, maybe 12 minutes that you're doing stuff like that max. And then the rest of the time, you're actually loading so you can get stronger in those areas so you don't have to keep doing it. Because the Joey scenario that we brought up before, eventually he didn't have to roll his T-band out anymore because his glute med was now strong enough to support his gait, whereas before it wasn't doing its job enough. It wasn't optimal. We got that area stronger. But you see, that's something that it's connected in your chain and your body is kind of set up like a it's it's sometimes it's referred to almost like a bow and arrow where you're going to have from your right foot all the way to your left shoulder you're going to have that power distribute through to your jab in the case of a boxer his power would come from his toe even so it's set up like almost an archery or a bow type of system and that's where you know, there's books like Body Trains that are out there that give you good information. But again, I find that there's always a system that people want to go to, like it's black or white. And there's some good concepts in there that I like, but I don't take all of it like it is the only way that we can treat ourselves or that we can serve ourselves with with good tactics and information. Yeah, and that takes practice too, just as we mentioned, I think it was a couple of podcasts ago, but you may not always know your set point in working out and you may not always know your set point when it comes to the release work. So I think it does take a little bit of practice and seeing what works and you might have to go through a few different scenarios before you figure out exactly what's going to work for you. And then that could change the next week because something else is going to be different. So just knowing that just doing your research and having a plan and just trying different things. And like Matt said, not always sticking to the black and white, like, oh, this worked for me last time. So I'm going to do this exact same thing. And then if it doesn't work, well, you just have to be a little bit flexible with that and kind of, you know, experiment. Knowing yourself is uh, so much of this. And in Joey's example, I know that he ended up telling me how much harder he was punching and that his coach down in Florida was just talking about how incredibly strong Joey was and powerful. But yet Joey was always sort of the strongest guy in the room relatively pound for pound. He just wasn't distributing his power very well. So that whole concept of elasticity and being able to really use his approach to power and power economy started to get disrupted when he'd put in, let's say, some sort of progressive overload for conditioning like road work. And when he started to notice that his power was diminishing, that's step one, knowing that there's something going on here. And it came down to his his gait pattern and that glute mead that I discussed before and reinforcing that energy leak. Once we plugged that hole, he was able to distribute that power again. So having an idea about where you're at versus where you want to be. And then if you notice changes, whether it's good or bad, being able to respond to that. And that's, I think, a big part of the programming here that we want to discuss today. And how do you know? Well, I would say that it is worth it for you to hire a professional to to help you because there is so much to know. I mean, that is part of what, hey, sorry, but you're going to get better information by somebody who just has studied this and lives this and knows this and does this with athletes. So it's worth that investment. But I humbly say you want to make sure you're hiring somebody that really has that kind of experience and knowledge because there's plenty of people who have their licenses that I'm kind of surprised what they don't know about athleticism and quote unquote functional training. Well, you could be an LMT like I was back in 2009 where I didn't really link 
I mean, I understood there was a link between massage and training just because I was in both worlds, but I didn't necessarily think of massage as being part of a strength program. I kind of still saw them as two separate worlds that didn't didn't connect 100%. So to be fair to all the LMTs out there that don't have a strength background, they may be thinking that same thing. They don't see a, you know, they may not have the information to give you to, to follow up after the massage. They're doing the best they can in the, in the room, in the massage room, on the table, getting you feeling good, but they don't have that information. So yeah, that's where you need to know who to go to for that next step. In that scenario where we're talking about a boxer's punch, which by the way is, I believe, the most lethal weapon we have in any type of punch or kick or defense system that we can produce power-wise, it's still our overhead, would you call it an overhead? You're the martial artist here, but is it the uh, overhead right or overhead left, depending on if you're... For a jab? No, no, a... A cross. A knockout type of punch. Oh, I'd say a cross, yeah. A cross. And so that's really, again, coming from your big toe. And, or at least that's strength from afar, right? And so that's where we talk about the yin, strength from afar. And the yang is more about having that sort of balance in your system and your body so that your body can do its, its job. And so that's partially what I think that uh, people need to know about their bodies is it is all connected. You stub your toe, you get a headache. And that going back to DNIC, why does it work? Because we have friends of ours, even recently, we had a friend complaining about her knees from running and she was asking what to do. And it was on a group text and, and another friend, had, I mean, well-meaning because it worked for her, but she said, oh, just, just foam roll your quads. It really works. Yeah, and I I didn't really say much because, again, we're on a group text with like nine other people, but Matt and I talked about it after. And again, very well-meaning because, yeah, that did work for her. I'm sure it did. But my the other person that is actually having the knee problems I don't think has the same um, issues that the person giving the advice is having. So it's really probably not going to work for her. And then she's going to roll her quads and then be disappointed that her knees still hurt. So again, very well meaning advice because you want to help somebody out, but without the knowledge and the experience behind it, it doesn't really work. I know as a strength coach, I started off having a lot of good results with my athletes that had knee pain when we would do certain terminal knee extension type of exercises. So Spanish squats, for example, it's almost like my go-to, especially with the right setup in the bands that can really help with that responsiveness. But then long-term, again, we are looking at sort of how can we get that foot under the hip and place that foot more responsively to use the glutes because the glutes really need to be the main worker in that situation. So that's why I keep going to these energy system needs or these pathways, whatever you want to call it, body trains. I mean, there's there's so many different names out there. They're all kind of referring to the, the yin scenario I was talking about. And when it comes to the long-term, the big picture approach, I can't stand it when I still hear to this day, that running is bad for your knees. I'm I'm going to be 50 pretty soon, and I have zero problems with my knees. I run more than I have in years, and I'm not saying that to, I'm not trying to brag about I'm older and I run more than you do, and I'm telling people, you can do it too. I had so many problems when I was younger because I didn't do these things, because I didn't know, and I didn't understand what it was going to do for me if I trained my system properly. So going from doing knee extension type of movements, terminal knee extensions would say Spanish squats, and then building up my glutes and having that strength and also the firing patterns that I wanted to have and really working on skill sets and focusing on those skill sets. So for example, some of the times the best thing I can do 
is evaluate somebody, see that they're just shoving their weight right towards their knee or right into their knees, see that's the problem, then ask them to do something like a glute bridge. Can you feel that? Can you feel that in your glutes? A lot of times they they can't feel it or it takes a while before they can feel it at all. I think it's funny bringing up the glute situation because you, if we have the saying, you know, that your glutes are your roots and that can go for so many scenarios, but the running for the knees. So who would think, oh my gosh, my glutes just aren't strong enough. And that brings to mind, um, the low back pain scenario where everyone it's my core is not strong enough. My core is not strong enough. Yeah. But which part of your core is not strong enough? Is it the front or is it your or is it your glutes? And most likely it's, it goes back to the same thing. It's not your anterior core, it's your glutes aren't firing. So that's why your low back is hurting. I just thought that was an interesting, you know, thing going from your knees to your low back. Well, it's actually right in the middle. It's your, it's your glutes. <laughs> Excellent point. And this is just maybe something a little bit of a side point, but I think it's worth talking about. When you're learning how to recruit your glutes and you start to say squat, and I've heard this so many times with people, even with trainers, and they're telling them, okay, squeeze your glutes, squeeze your glutes at the top. They squeeze their glutes at the top of, say, a squat, but then they're actually hyperextending their lower back. And that is not the position they want to be in. And so we say butt and gut, ribs, ribs down or ribs in, and then tuck your tailbone. And that connection is kind of more of what I think of as core connection. What about you? Well, yeah, the, the front of the core, but also don't forget about the, the posterior of the core. So those two, the anterior and posterior, need to work in combination together to, to be effective. And sometimes the answer is not to progress too quickly and to really start to adapt more skill set as you go. So the reason why I say that is because when I am giving, let's bring it back to foam rolling, when I'm giving protocol to an athlete who still needs to foam roll and follow this specific protocol that sure helps them get out there and run, but six weeks later, they still need to do it. We have, there's something that we've missed. There's something we haven't figured out. And by the way, that's okay. It happens. It happens all the time. And even with my all the experience that we have in the last 20 years or so, Every athlete is a new scenario. And so sure, maybe nine times out of 10, the things that we're thinking of work and we can just go from there. We don't have further issues, but there's always sort of those tougher cases. And then we might have to figure out something else that needs to be in congruency. A lot of times I will say though, that the foam rolling or the SMR is being done daily because going back to your point, that's what they enjoy because it it allows them to feel better. It allows them to go do what they want to do, but then they kind of skip the mechanical loading. They skip doing the strength protocol and we'll do a whole podcast on this, but starting our YouTube channel for runners, I want to call it running strong. I think you guys can let me know what you think on that, but there are so many times when runners are told to do strength protocol with just their body weight, that's okay to start off with, but six weeks later, they're still doing that same protocol. Their body has adjusted and they need to load more. And I just, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to not be afraid of the weights, the bar, and to expect that for results, to be able to put that time in and earn it. Maybe you're not earning the right to do more miles. Maybe you're not earning the right to do more of your dancing or your your martial arts, whatever it is. And don't take that personally because I had to spend a good three or four years earning the right to run again. It just didn't just come after I had done so much damage to my body. I had to spend a good few years before I, I honestly went about three years and some of it was just learning more, um, understanding more. It wouldn't take me as long now that I know what I know, but 
I had to probably spend a good three years or so with my protocol and making progressive overload a part of my adaptions before things stopped hurting and before I was completely pain free. Yeah, I haven't had luckily any experience with some major injuries or setbacks um, to where I've had to, to go through that. But again, with the fundamentals of training that we talked about in Monday's podcast about knowing that you can always go back to those fundamentals and you can always build your base and you can always make those things stronger um, ties in really well with the SMR as well, because a lot of the movements you're going to be doing post SMR, post massage, all of that stuff are going to be those fundamental movements, those basic movements that everybody should know how to do really well. So those are always, to me, such a good combination. I would also say that when it comes to what you use to do your SMR work with, having that harder surface like we talked about before can be appropriate, especially for certain areas. But I would say that you want to start off with something softer. What I do know is that if you're fighting it and you really feel pain, a lot of pain, and when I say a lot, I would say that you're usually going to start off with maybe a level two or three and discomfort. And that's your perceived discomfort in that, in that uh, particular movement you're doing. If it's beyond that, then you're probably fighting it too much. And then I question how effective it is for you. You can't relax. Yeah. And always starting with less versus more because you can always add more later. So I have been guilty of this too in a massage, me being the the practitioner giving the, the massage. And I will tell the person like, you need to let me know if I'm getting up towards a, you know, a six, seven on that pain scale, because I need to back down. And they may not say anything the whole massage. So I'm like, okay, I can keep going. I can keep going. Well, then the next day they say, wow, I got really sore. I mean, sore, more sore than, than say a strength workout. It's like, okay, then we did way too much. And that, that's on me, you know, that's on them a little bit. They could, you know, communicate that, but that's on me too, to, to step back and say, okay, you got to start with, start with less and you can always add more later. Cause you definitely can't take it away once you've already done the work. I think that when it comes to a lot of the concepts we're talking about today, we need to maybe address upstream and downstream as well. Because when an area hurts and you say, okay, my knee really hurts, the tendency is to go right to that area and, and smash that as opposed to going upstream, going above that area and going below that area to help to bring some relief and to help even get that muscle to relax a little bit but without beating up your body as much and causing those bruises and that sort of thing. But that's, again, when we talk a little bit more about knowing your anatomy, understanding how your body works and how it's all connected. Sometimes a professional can help with that a little bit more. In my case, with my piriformis, I had piriformis syndrome and I was... I was uh, amazed when I went to the PT, they had me rolling out my piriformis that brought me to my knees. I mean, literally just, I started having so many issues with shocking pain running down my leg with that nerve. And that was uh, the sciatic nerve that I was pushing into. And so I had a client a couple years back, he came in with this, this same pain, these same syndromes. I asked him what he had been doing, and he said he was rolling out doing his piriformis SMR work daily. And I told him, okay, first thing, stop doing that. Don't do that anymore. And I did give him some other protocol to do, of course, but he ended up contacting me, I think three days later. And that's when he hired me and we started working together. But, uh, he, he said, yeah, I, I, that was, that was obviously making it so much worse. And I thought I was supposed to be doing it. Yeah. The, the days of, uh, that saying no pain, no gain are 
pretty much gone. Um, I know that was more based on in the, in the strength room or the workout arena of if there's no pain, you're not going to get any better. But there needs to be a, a you know a distinct difference between good pain, well. The good pain, bad pain, but more discomfort. So pain versus discomfort. It's okay to be uncomfortable. Sure, that's how we grow. But it's not okay to be in pain and that's going to injure you and you're supposed to push past that. That's a, that's a different scenario and that's not okay. But discomfort is okay. Pain is a different story. Yeah, there's a term and it's basically, it's your uh, your groove. You your Your body is going to be able to groove a move and that is about your fascia being able to respond and remember and whether it's optimal or not is kind of the question sometimes i think it can be optimal to roll out an area sometimes it's not but i think we're forgetting to just pay attention and and uh, listen to what our body is trying to tell us because oftentimes the answers are there in front of us. For example, that scenario where in a calf keeps cramping up and I'll have an athlete smash the calf. And so they're rolling on the calf and they're doing toe flickers and they're releasing that calf a little bit more, trying to get out the, the, uh, the, the knots, even though that's not really correct, but that's, that's what we've been taught. And then we go into a stretch and they hold that stretch. That's going to help to relieve that, that, uh, calf. But then really, if they're not getting into HSR, so that's heavy, slow resistance for that calf and hopefully in a specific movement. So let's say a sprinter might use a sled, and they might push a heavy sled and emphasizing that calf push, right? So that heel raise toe off position. The nice part about something like a sled is they can actually get right into this same angle they'd be sprinting at and strengthen their calf in that position. After six weeks or so, we can probably we can probably get to the point where we don't have that calf cramping up anymore. But if all we're doing is stretching that calf and releasing it and voodoo wrapping it, we'll get to that in a second. If, the, if that's all we're doing, odds are we're still going to have that calf cramping on us. And the body is amazing at registering when something's not going to change and the brain, I actually, I should say, is amazing at registering and remembering and saying, okay, I've tried to tell you for weeks now that this is a problem, that, that the calf is not strong enough to handle this workload. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to shut you down now. So we're, that's where I believe injuries can actually be allowed to happen by the brain so that you're forced to shut down. Why do a lot of athletes get better after they've been injured because the brain said, okay, we're going to make you take six weeks to get, to, to take time off of this and to be able to recover. And we're going to force you to get better at this before we're going to allow you to sprint again. Not, not that we expect everybody again, to just know all this offhand. It's what we've been studying for, for many years and Matt more so than myself with the learning and researching constantly. So don't feel like, oh gosh, well, I never knew any of this stuff. I've been doing it wrong this whole time. I'm sure that's that's very typical, but that's why we wanted to to get this out here so that you can now kind of hear our perspective of it and feel free to, you know, go into your own research on this. But yeah, the the smash and release, the stretching, but then following up with some sort of mechanical loading in our experience has just been what works. So our main question was about SMR, but we did want to cover the topics of taping, um, trigger pointing, we kind of discussed already, and things like cupping. Do these things work? Do you think that trigger pointing, taping, cupping, do these things work, Aaron? Same answer I would give you for the SMR. Yes, if it is done for a specific planned, you know, well thought out reason, not just because, oh, I'm just going to, you know, throw a cup on here and tape you here and you're going to be great. Go ahead and, you know, carry on. Um, same, yeah, same answer. It has to be 
for an educated reason? What I do know when it comes to my body is that I've got some damage from all of the excessive progressive overloading that I did for my running back in the day without doing the mechanical loading to support it. So that being said, I also, I've had some experience with hot shotting where I had some really, some trauma that happened that you can't really prevent. There's no amount of prehab that's going to prevent your, a tree from crushing your shoulder. So I had somebody in a, when I took a cupping class, I had somebody cut my shoulder. Now she knew ahead of time that I would be sort of a project because I have limited range in my left shoulder and all the way down that sort of fault line I've talked about before with my spine. And so she worked on it in the class, demonstrated my range of motion before and after, and actually showed that I increased my range of motion after the therapy session. So that to me was fantastic. I loved, I'm giving the positive part of that. I love the fact that I could see that it did something for me. And I was actually skeptical. I took the class more because I needed it for my CEUs, not so much because I thought cupping was where, what I needed to, to learn, I'll be honest. The kind of the position I took, though, was Michael Phelps. Everyone seemed like they were going to cup after they saw Michael Phelps' shoulder and his back with all his cup marks in the last Olympics. And it just like set everything on fire. All these athletes all of a sudden need to cup all the time. But then when I look at what cupping is really doing and the fact that it could be done in other ways as well. To me, I know this is oversimplifying it. If you're somebody who's really into cupping and if it works for you, keep doing it. I don't think that it's really has any real ill effect, not personally anyways, but where you have a SMR type of tool, let's say you take a lacrosse ball and you smash into an area, sometimes that can really uh, help, right? Or if you take, let's say for your thoracic spine, you take tennis balls and you tape them together and they're called peanut balls and you're rolling on each side of your spine with those tennis balls, that's pretty common and pretty well known these days, but you can't do that everywhere. So when it comes to cupping, especially over uh, areas that might be a little more bony and, and hard to compress into, you're basically creating a form of myofascial release, but you're going the opposite way and you're pulling the fasci up. Does that have a benefit? I think it can. I think I think that it does in some ways. And quite honestly, I know people I really respect really disagree with that. But I have personally felt the benefit of it and even being skeptical said, hey, that that helped my shoulder. But what I needed to do, though, is take that range I had and then immediately go and do some arm bar work with a kettlebell and strengthen that shoulder position with that range of motion, I could now contribute. And that to me, adding that mechanical loading is what makes it work and what makes it work long-term. So I'm not cupping my shoulder anymore. Yeah, I don't have much personal experience with the cupping. I didn't, that wasn't, I think, even around when I went to massage school in 2000. I mean, I'm sure it was around. It wasn't introduced to me during my um massage education. So I do have cups. Matt has taught me some, some techniques with the cups, but, um, 99% of the time they just sit in my massage bag. So I don't really want to speak on that because I don't really have the personal experience there. If somebody comes in and says, I would like you to cut me, what would you say? Um, I would ask why. Okay. First, and based on their response, we could plan some treatment. It may be cupping or, you know, and if they've never tried it before and they're like, hey, I, I mean, that has happened to me where their answer is I say, well, why do you want to cup? They're like, well, I've just never done it before and I want to see if it helps. Like that to me is an okay answer because like Matt said, it's not going to do any damage. So sure, we'll try it. And then it's good to get feedback saying, hey, did that did you feel an improvement after the cupping versus what work I would normally do? So that that does have a, a benefit to just seeing what the reaction is and what happens after. And if it's if it helped and if if it made an improvement, then I'm all for doing it again. But 
that's about my experience with it right there. Cupping, it, it can be very helpful in my mind. But again, this is one of those practices sort of like kinesio tape taping where people take a course for a weekend and now they're certified and now they're doing it and they believe in it. Don't get me wrong. I think that they believe it works if they're providing this treatment, but I just think it just tends to get oversold. And then again, I have to say, make sure that whoever is working on you is actually um, a licensed therapist if they're cupping you. Cupping is one of those things that you anybody can order cups. And I do have athletes that order their own cups and do stuff like that to themselves. I tell them where to cup and how to do it, but they are the ones doing it on their own. The problem, though, is when you have, let's say, a trainer, this strength coach that has not gone through these classes and hasn't had to study the lymphatic system, for example, they might be just randomly cupping you and there's not any rhyme or reason to it. There's no thought or science behind it. And then that's when I think that it can it can be potentially harmful for you. And uh, that in general, I think, is a concept that I want to bring out today and just I'm not trying to push this fact, but I do have to reiterate, make sure that your trainer is qualified for what they're doing with you, because you'd be amazed at how many trainers I know that do therapy, really, and they have they don't have the schooling, the license, the education for it. Now the day of YouTube and you can look things up and see how to do things and you can act like an expert pretty easily and influence things pretty easily. And I think too many people just trust it without asking for the credentials. Yeah, whether it's strength training or myofascial release, yes, please just be educated yourself and know that the person you are seeking advice from or treatment from is educated as well, because that right there will make all the difference in the world with why you're doing certain strength movements and also why you're doing certain release movements. There should always be a plan and a reason behind why you are doing what you're doing. And as far as taping goes, kinesio tape is something that We'll probably finish with this. I think it'll be a nice wrap up. But how many people are either using kinesio tape themselves, which, again, it's pretty harmless to, to use kinesio tape on yourself. And there's really some benefit to it, again, in my opinion. But there's maybe more of an awareness you're giving your body. So your brain is aware that there's tape that's around your joint or supporting an area that has pain, if you pull on your skin and I'm saying you physically take your hand or your thumb and you pull on your skin above an area that hurts or below it, and it feels better when you do that, that pulling technique might indicate that taping will help to support that. And that's just a simple test that I give for people who ask about whether or not they should be taped. To be honest with you, if I'm not asked about it, I normally don't do it because I don't think that it's really worth it. But if you like the taping or if you think it's going to give just enough support to make you more aware, um, I'll give a perfect example when I do use it a lot of times, not so much for the traditional use, but more for almost posture where I'm going to tape somebody's shoulders and I'm going to tape in such a way and even re reinforce the tape in such a way that the tape is going to remind the person when they start to slump their shoulders to bring their shoulders back because they feel that stretch um, on the tape and it actually feels a bit uncomfortable, almost like a reminder though that they need to get their shoulders pulled, armpits squeezed, that sort of thing so that they keep better posture. Yeah, the one, the time, when was that? Oh, about eight months ago, I did hurt my back, just some, you know, bending over to pick something up. It wasn't even anything crazy. And um, Matt taped me. And that was the whole point was um, 
to make me aware that this is the posture you should be in in order for your back to be at its optimal position. So anytime I would try, my body would try to move back to the not so good position, that tape was there. To, I mean, it was uncomfortable. It's like, oh, shoot. Okay. I better, you know, make that adjustment and go back to my posture. That's going to keep my back feeling good. But that's the only time I've ever used tape and I don't use it on a regular basis. So that was it for me. Yeah. I mean, quite honestly, with any of these things, if I have to use it on a regular basis for week after week after week, especially after about six weeks, that's when the red flag comes up and I want to know what else I should have been doing or should be doing. A lot of times it does come down to just consistency. If you're not consistent, this, again, we talk about nutrition, we talk about training, preventative work like this. If you haven't been consistent with it for about six weeks, you probably can't make a judgment whether or not it is working. But if you've done it consistently for six weeks and you still have problems, and let's say you've gone from a level of, let's say, six pain to a level of two, well, you've definitely made progress, continue. You're, you're heading in the right direction. But if you're still at a six, if it's just neutralizing it at best, then you might want to consider other options. And if it's getting worse, then certainly you probably need to explore different options instead. Yeah, and that's my final thing I'll say that I've kind of repeated a couple times, but just make sure it's for the right reasons and you have a plan and, and you know why you are doing what you're doing, whether it's strength training or this SMR taping, trigger point, cupping, all of that. Just that is my final piece of advice is just know why you're you're doing these things. Yeah, because we we have a friend of ours that actually talked about her taping and when she was competing her tape came off and she said as soon as it came off my knee started hurting again and her coach tapes her and I know that he has good intentions taping her but that's that nocebo effect we talk about. And instead of just strengthening not only the, the, the body, guys, but the mind, I think it's important that you get confident that you don't need these aids anymore. And because that tape is going to come off, especially in a Spartan competition. And when it comes off, what are you going to do then? So by the time I'm competing, I certainly don't want to have to have tape around me or to feel like I have to have these other things in order to compete. I want to know that it's on me and my body can perform these tasks because I've done my due diligence. I've earned the right to be out there competing. And so don't get me wrong. I have athletes that will compete with tape or they will have any sort of placebo that's going to help them. And I'm okay with that, but not long term. I don't want it to be a year later where this athlete is still getting the same tape job done around their knee to support that. To me, that there's certainly something wrong with programming in that case. And certainly we have more of a mental break in deficiency there to where we're very dependent on these things. And it shouldn't be that way. And as I work with more high level athletes, I'm amazed at how we call it superstition a lot of times, but it's really, to me, it's more of that nocebo effect where they think that they need a therapist three or four days a week, believe it or not, in order to do what they're doing, even though what they're doing is higher level, it just should not be the case. There's something wrong with the programming. It's too much too soon or it can even just be mental. I have worked with some athletes where they just think they need it, even when they've gotten physically strong enough to not need it. The problem is they were told that they need it. So just don't believe everything you're told. And to wrap this up, what would we say are the benefits then of rolling or taping or we talked a little bit about this, but voodoo flossing, um, that's a whole nother conversation basically about wrapping around a joint and getting some of that circulation pumped into an area. Um, but these type of treatments, I think all can have their place. 
but we want to make sure that it's more of a vessel. To me, it's a opportunity to be able to get in the mechanical loading. So the real idea is to be able to get stronger, relatively stronger, so that you don't need to keep doing these things. So it's just simply a temporary vessel, I think is a better way of saying it, in order to continue working on progressions that are going to give you that support that you need mechanically. That's what's going to keep you sound and keep these injuries from coming back again and again and again and allow you to keep doing what you love for years and years to come. Yeah, I don't, I honestly do not foam roll SMR, any of that stuff on a regular basis, just because I don't need to. Um, and I'm not trying to sound like, oh, I'm so good. I don't need to do this stuff. I just really f do not have a physical need to, to do these things. I function just fine. I don't have any pain. There are times where if something is starting to kind of creep in there, I will address it with SMR, but I will follow that same pattern. I will, I will smash and release. I will stretch. I will load. And then that the first day is usually takes care of whatever my issue that I'm having. And then it'll be another, you know, say six months and something else might come up. But like Matt said, it's a temporary. And for me, luckily, most of the time it's a one-time thing. And then I move on from that. So I don't even foam roll one, I mean, once a week even. So that's, that's me personally. Yeah. A lot of my athletes love to put SMR in the beginning of their routines and I certainly program it. And I personally like to do it for a few minutes. I'll usually just do just some basic rule. I use a med ball, by the way, a little tip for you guys that do SMR. I use a med ball as opposed to a, a foam roll. I think med balls, especially you can get them to collapse just a little bit more, depending on how much air you put into them, how hard the ball is, or even something like a basketball. And it's more forgiving. You can cover more areas and it actually sort of uses a little bit more of the positions that you like to get into with, let's say, thoracic extension. The ball will support that, but also move with that position. So it's kind of, I call it a flow, right? So it's it's more of a SMR flow I use the med ball for, but I just like it. I like to warm up that way a little bit more. So I do use it, but I don't need it in that sense. And then what I would finish with is when I have let's say two or three uh, new movements or progressions in my programming that are creating a progressive overload on a certain area that I know I typically start to need a little bit more warm up for or work up for, then I will tend to use that in those areas a little bit more, just almost like being a bit more preventative. But again, it just it's what works for you and then it's allowing you to be able to do more or to be able to recover a little bit more. So hopefully that helps you guys out. I think that those questions that you're bringing in to us have been so valuable for, for us to be able to answer, for our audience to be able to, to listen to. Hopefully we're serving you well with our answers. We'll talk to you next time, guys. Thank you so much. Well, now you know. Now you have the tools to answer the question for yourself. Does foam rolling work? That may be up to you. I still think for me it does provide some benefits, but I'm also not going to be doing it so intensely that I bruise myself anymore. And I don't know about you, but I'm interested in learning about how the body is set up. I feel like that kind of knowledge always helps me make more informed decisions in my fitness programs. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Also, check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Get in touch via our newsletter and try out the Pandola's app while it's still free. Thank you for listening. Talk to you on Monday. Monday.